everyone. Pat Finn, Sons of Saturday, doing the solo pre-roll today. A couple quick hitters before we get into it. Hope everyone had a great weekend. I myself had a great weekend. Actually drove up the uh, up 287, up to the parkway. Saw the Mitchell family, Billy Ray and, and company. They were grilling up all of these smoked meats. And that uh, was an incredible time. Spent a lot of time just being a fly on the wall of a conversation of which Paramus Catholic team was better, Billy's or his younger brother Jackson's. So that was something else. Uh, we heard some news from Latrell Neville, our wide receiver committed from Missouri City, Texas for the class of 2021. He decommitted as of uh, yesterday afternoon or early evening. Obviously, this is not great news, uh, but kind of something that, you know, if you didn't see this coming, this guy had committed because Demetrius Davis had committed. So we'll get into that a lot more uh, on a midweek episode, kind of addressing the state of this 2021 class and uh, any specific momentum that we might acquire for the month of June. Uh, and on that episode, we're actually going to have Paul Alexander joining us. He was the offensive line coach for the Cincinnati Bengals from 1994 to 2017. And he was uh, instrumental in the recruitment, or uh, the coaching, I should say, of our new offensive lineman uh, from Germany, Danny Gell Militech. Very interested to hear from Coach Alexander uh, here this week. So uh, we'll put out an episode midweek interviewing uh, Mr. Paul Alexander, hearing about Danny Gell Militech, talking about recruiting as well uh, with Latrell Neville's departure from the class of 2021 and what we could look forward to here. Other than that, two quick hitters from our sponsors. Sharky's Blacksburg is hiring. They had a, uh, a substantial amount of staff graduate, and they are looking for uh, new staff. So please hit up Sharkies if you are looking for a, uh, an on-campus, or I should say off-campus job in Blacksburg. Uh, they have an incredible staff. Hit up JJ or Kyle or Stephanie, and uh, they will chat with you and uh, let you know what types of positions they have open. I know that their orders are starting to go on Grubhub. I know that they opened the patios as well, and that has uh, increased traffic in Sharky's. Uh, but yeah, check them out because they uh, are great people at Sharky's Blacksburg. And then the Hokey Haiku, brought to you by our good friends at the Main Street Pharmacy, Dr. Jeremy Counts, one of the best pharmacists in all of the 540 in all of Southwest Virginia. Jeremy Counts and his friendly staff, Go down to Main Street Pharmacy, check out what they have. Uh, they have anything you need for your COVID-19. Go check them out. Uh, give them your business. Jeremy cares about uh, the Blacksburg community, the New River Valley community, the Virginia Tech community so much. And uh, it's only fair that uh, Jeremy is your guy when you need pharmaceutical help and attention. So hit up Jeremy Counts. Other than that, here's the, uh, the Hokey Haiku submitted by Grant Watson. Wheel out old skipper. The suns blast off with Homer. Sons of science, man. We have a incredible interview coming up right after this with Homer Hickam. Class of 1964. NASA, Army vet. He created a he, he didn't create the movie, but he wrote a book that was turned into a movie. He's a esteemed author. He's a hokey. 
Huntsville, Alabama, lives on St. John, just does all this cool stuff. Dino Hunter, uh, Homer Hickam, talk about a uh, an esteemed alumni from Virginia Tech. This is going to be a, a great a great interview, so uh, enjoy. Thank you for joining us as always, and uh, without further ado, here is Mr. Homer Hickam. Sons and daughters of Saturday, welcome back. We have a, another one for you, bringing Hokies all around the globe, all around the country, and uh, sharing some really cool stories of Virginia Tech alumni doing great things. Today, we have Mr. Homer Hickam coming on, super excited about this. So we'll get into a quick introduction here first, and then we'll, uh, we'll go from there. But Mr. Homer Hickam was born and raised in the mountains of Colwood, West Virginia, which was a mining town. And he is a 1964 graduate of Virginia Tech with a degree in industrial engineering. He is the author of many publications, most likely known uh, his biography, Rocket Boys, which describes his life growing up in Colwood. And it was later turned into a feature film, October Sky. Mr. Hickam served as a first lieutenant in the 4th Infantry Division in Vietnam in 1967 and 1968, where he won the Army Commendation and the Bronze Star Medals, serving six years on active duty. While he was writing bestsellers, Mr. Hickam was also on the U.S. Army Missile Command from 1971 to 1981 in Huntsville, Alabama, and Germany, and started his NASA career in 1981 as an aerospace engineer, where he had some responsibilities uh, training astronaut crews for many assignments, including the Hubble Space Telescope deployment mission. A lot of cool things that Mr. Hickam has done over the years. He's an avid dino hunter, a scuba instructor, and is also on the board of the U.S. Space and Rocket Center, and also serves as a member of the Users Advisory Group of the National Space Council, appointed by VP Mike Pence in 2018. Mr. Homer Hickam, welcome to the Sons of Saturday. Well, thank you for having me. I look forward to, to this. Uh, you guys look great, and uh, it's, uh, it's always good to, to talk to fellow Hokies. And, you know, down here in Alabama, I don't see that many of them. When, um, you know, everybody's either Alabama or Auburn down here. And so over the year, and, and they want to know which side you're on. And I go, I get to say, well, I went to Virginia Tech. I'm a Hokie. And so then they leave me alone. They go wander off and <laughs> grab hold of somebody else. So that's good. That's good. I'm always proud of, uh, of being able to say that I'm from Virginia Tech. There's a lot of, um, when I worked for NASA, there was a lot of uh, Virginia Tech folks here in Huntsville and also down in uh, Houston, uh, up at Goddard, of course, a whole bunch of them up there, Langley. Uh, so... Uh, we're around and we're actually required. We are the, we're the part that keeps everything running, you know, and then we let uh, the MIT guys and all those guys, Georgia Tech and all those guys, Stanford, take credit, but, it's, but they always come to us for, uh, for real engineering and real advice, you know, so. Yes. Uh, no, it's true. It's, it's actually true. The, the engineers that I always run across from Virginia Tech, we're always pretty practical guys. You know, we're kind of sequential in nature, and it's like, okay, if you do A, then B follows, or one, and then two, and three. And some of those MIT guys, they start at 25, and you got to drag them back to one, you know. So thank goodness we're around to keep everybody straight. So before we get into the, the, the typical line of questioning here, I want to ask you, 
how have you and your family fared and, and have been hanging in there uh, in amidst this pandemic? Uh, you are in Huntsville, Alabama. Have you been there since this started? What have you been doing to stay safe? What actions have you, uh, have you taken throughout this, uh, this event? The first thing my wife and I did was actually catch COVID-19. Uh, we just felt like, oh, wow, we had not get it out of the way. No, <laughs> well, oh. <laughs> we did get it. What, wow. what actually happened was that, um, well, yeah, you don't think I'm going to let something like this get by me. Do you? <laughs> um, usually we get our flu shots. Uh, but this year, I don't know if you know, but my house got blown away um, in 2017 down in St. John by the hurricane uh, Irma. And so I was down there this fall uh, and I forgot to get my flu shot. Uh, because they don't have it in the Virgin Islands, and but my wife got hers. But uh, about uh, two weeks before all this started, that we realized that this thing, this virus, was in the in the United States. Um, I spent um, uh, a few days out at space camp. That's that's the space and rocket center is space camp. If you you know anything about it, you know you bring in kids. Yep from all over the country and all over the world. Well, we had a um, several groups from China. Um, and when I was there and they were just all over me with their little sticky fingers and everything. And, uh, it wasn't uh, more than a week later. I was sitting here right here at this desk and I thought I have the flu. I, and it's been like forever since I've had the flu. And, uh, so it, it turned into, um, I can't, uh, I haven't gone to the doctor to get a blood draw or anything, but it hardly could have been anything else. It was one of those things went straight to your lungs. And I coughed, I coughed so hard. And, uh, but I just took NyQuil and DayQuil and went to bed and got it over. But uh, from description to my doctor, uh, she says, well, I think you got, uh, I think you got the COVID, Homer. And stay away from our office. <laughs> Unbelievable. Wow. So um, I don't know. We'll see if, um, maybe I'll get an antibody test later to see. But anyway, I'll tell you what, if, it, if, if this thing is as bad as what I had, it's nothing you want to mess around with. So we were happy to go into the quarantine. Um, and uh, I had uh, some, a book that I needed to work on anyway, so that was good that I had that. And um, I don't like most people anyway, so I, it's fine. I can stay away from it. So. <laughs> well, we're happy that you're healthy, and we're happy that you're doing well. That's that's uh, unbelievable. So. I tell you what, you guys are young. You, you're not supposed to be able to get it, so I hope you don't. <laughs> <laughs> so as we uh, so we kind of broke this down into different sections of uh, of your life here. Um, and my first question here was both at the beginning of the film October Sky, and notably has been the reason that you first got into rocketry or, or uh, space science, you saw Sputnik streak across the sky. And when I was watching the film with my parents, they were both talking about how scary that was or how much of uncertainty there was in the world with the Cold War going on and the race to space. Um, what were the emotions that went through your head? Was it all inspiring or was some of it uh, you know, scary? What, what kind of in that moment as you watched it streak across the sky, what was going through your head? Well, it, it had been, the, the mass media that day had really kind of primed everybody to be terrified of this thing. And um, because it was the Soviet Union and um, they were our big Cold War enemy. And we had um, uh, just huge stockpiles of nuclear weapons on both sides. And we had B-52 bombers loaded up with these things uh, in the sky at all times, orbiting around, ready to go. 
they had their bear bomber over there. We had all that. And then they were testing intercontinental ballistic missiles and, you know, the cold war was on, it was on big time. And uh, it looked like that we'd probably ultimately have a nuclear war. And so that was all kind of ingrained in our heads. And um, when, when they did this thing, when the Soviet union just surprised everybody and did this thing, um, we were all primed to be very scared, but um, there was also, um, this was, this was a golden age of science fiction. And so we kids were all out reading, you know, Heinlein, star, Starship Troopers, and uh, have, have Spacesuit Will Travel, and Isaac Asimov, and all this kind of thing, that it looked like to us that it would be, I don't know, um, maybe in 100 years, people would be able to put things in space, and maybe in 1,000 years, humans would be able to go into space. So all of a sudden, here was something... And it was just amazing when you saw it. You forgot all. Uh, you forgot that it was Russian or anything like that. Uh, it just was amazing to see something in space at all. And it went so differently. It was rare for an airplane to fly over cold. Most people stopped what they were doing and looked up when an airplane <laughs> flew over. But um, uh, to see something go through the uh, night sky with such steady purpose, you know, it's going five miles a second, but it's slow across the sky. So um, it was just amazing to see. And I, I was so very impressed by that, um, that uh, that's, that's why I decided to try to get involved with it. Because we knew that the United States was going to now going to launch their own satellite and, uh, and do other things in space. So it was a great adventure that started. And that, that's what really attracted me to the idea of building rockets, just get involved with, with this crazy thing that was about to happen. So why did you feel compelled to tell the story of the Rocket Boys? And how did you react when Lewis Kolick adapted this Hollywood screenplay for this book that you wrote? Well, I'll take that in a couple of phases. The first thing is that um, I was pretty like, I, I wrote a, another book called Torpedo Junction. That was my first book. It was, um, came out in 1989 and it was all about why my cat is scratching on my computer. Stop it. Um, the, <laughs> live TV. I was wondering uh, what that was. <laughs> I was too. It's like, Wyatt. But anyway, <laughs> um, so I'd written this other book called Torpedo Junction, which was about the U-boat wars up and down the East coast during world war two. And um, I spent a lot of time diving on, on the wrecks. Wyatt, stop it. I had diving out on the wrecks and off North Carolina and uh, that kind of thing. And so, um, by the way, I'll tell you a quick story. I, there was this uh, insurance salesman up in uh, Maryland who was also writing a book about submarines the same time that I was. And I had written a bunch of stuff on, uh, on U-boats and uh, he started calling me. And, uh, and, and we started talking about uh, submarines. He was very interested in submarines. Long story short, his name was Tom Clancy. So, um, oh, wow. So Tom and I ended up with the same first publisher of a Naval Institute press. I'm going to kill this cat. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, um, uh, that's, so I'd written this book and, but then I got really, really, uh, involved at NASA. I went over to Japan and lived for a year training the first Japanese astronauts. And then we had the Hubble space telescope deployment and also the repair missions going on. So I got really, really busy with NASA and I kind of thought torpedo junction was the book that I was, I was born to write. So 
but I wanted to keep writing, so I started writing for Smithsonian Air and Space Magazine, just little articles here and there. And one night in 96, I got a call from them, and they wanted 2,000 words. They wanted it the next day. Could I write about something? They didn't care. I had this reputation of being a fast writer, if not a good one. And so I looked across to my desk, and there sat this perfectly crafted steel De Laval rocket nozzle. Um, the only artifact I had left when I built rockets in Colwood. So I told the editor, Pat Trenner, I said, Pat, I could write you 2,000 words real quick about when I built rockets back in West Virginia. And I got to tell you, she was completely, totally, utterly underwhelmed with this idea. <laughs> and, um, but I did it, and it came out, and all of a sudden I had the calls from New York publishers and Hollywood saying, this sounds like something we'd like to make a movie about. And the publishers were saying, are you going to write a book about this? And I said, well, I am now. And so um, I did. And uh, it was a big bestseller. And yeah, and then Lewis Kolick, uh, well, Universal Studios, uh, Chuck Gordon, he's the producer of Die Hard and also Field of Dreams, um, acquired the, the story from me and assigned Lewis Kolick, an A-list writer, to write the screenplay. Um, the first version, I hated it. I just detested it. Um, as far as I could tell, Lewis thought everybody in Colwood um, didn't, didn't wear shoes. Um, he had us out, uh, he had the townspeople out protesting with pitchforks and, uh, and um, torches, like in a Frankenstein movie. <laughs> but um, so, you know, I had some discussions with Lewis and he said, Homer, you know, I know better than that. Uh, but um, this is what the, the, uh, the, the the people at Universal want. They want this. That's what they think West Virginia. That's their stereotype of West Virginia. That's what they want. So we're going to give them this and, and see if we can get it greenlit, and then we'll rewrite it. And so uh, so we did. That's the way it worked out. I spent, uh, I'd say, about 80% of the shooting days on set and uh, with uh, Jake Gyllenhaal and the other boys and uh, – Laura Dern. I only got kicked off set once because I hung around with Laura Dern too much, but, um, but, but she was great. She was looking for more, more time on screen. She didn't like her part. And so she kept uh, asking me over to her trailer and wouldn't you go to her trailer, Laura Dern's trailer if she asked you to go. So yes. I would go and she would press me about details on Miss Riley. And I would tell her, you know, Miss Riley would never say that. She would say this. And Miss Riley would do not do that. She would do this. And so then the producers called me in and said, uh, Homer, we think you need to take a break from the set for a while because every time we talk to Laura Dern, she says, well, Homer says this and Homer says that. <laughs> so I went, okay, all right, I got it. So, uh, But then I was able to come back. It's all cool. <laughs> so you mentioned a couple of, uh, you know, the first script that you weren't crazy about it. And I actually read that um, – one of the things that you didn't love about the movie was the, the friction between you and your father and that it didn't show the intellectual side of your father. So I wanted to, I wanted to ask you who was Homer senior and what was your relationship like as a whole? Well, um, you know, Chris Cooper wasn't that far off in, in uh, the way that he was kind of cold toward the sun. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, I, um, learned in the process of making this movie, uh, if I didn't know it before that making movies, is a totally different art form than writing a 
a, a memoir or any kind of book. So I got that. I understood. They only have you only have 90 minutes to two hours to tell the story. So you, a lot of things have to be uh, left out. I just kept trying to steer them toward a little bit more reality, and and I got it though. Um, who was Homer Hickam Sr.? He was uh, first off a big Virginia Tech fan. I can tell you that um, mainly because my brother went there, um, but uh, that started him. And um, also, he was a, he was an intellectual. He read constantly. Um, both he and my mother were big readers, but dad especially. So he read, uh, and he was also a very good engineer, although he didn't have a degree. He was trained by a Stanford engineer uh, graduate, the Captain Laird was his name, who ran Colwood until he retired, and then my dad took over his job. And uh, so my dad was probably one of the best uh, mining engineers in the country. Uh, he was a great, uh, especially knew a lot about mine ventilation. Uh, Colwood's mine was a very gassy mine full of methane. So you had to, it was an art form, if not a, a technical uh, requirement to really know how to ventilate that mine or else you're going to build up enough methane that it's going to all explode. Uh, so, um, so he had a lot of hard work and that's one of the reasons why he spent so much time up there was, was working ventilation problems. And, uh, uh, my mom was very jealous of the coal mine. She called it Miss Olga. It was Olga Coal Company. She called it Miss Olga. And so we didn't see that much of my dad because of that growing up. And, um, he really did. Um, uh, my brother was the light of his life and, um, uh, he just kind of left me to my mom. So, uh. So that's just kind of the way it worked out. But um, it made for a great story when the time came to tell it that uh, how uh, he didn't pay much attention to me. And then all of a sudden I was blowing things up all over town. <laughs> so he's kind of forced to pay attention. And so it was, it was interesting to, uh, to, uh, uh, for that, to write about that period because I was able to bring in that father-son uh, relationship. And the fact is that a lot of us um, guys that grew up with uh, fathers that came out of World War II and the Depression especially um, had distant fathers for that reason. They, as far as they were concerned, it was uh, putting, um, uh, if, you, if they could put a roof over your head or food on the table, their duty was done and then it was up to mom to raise the kids. And that was kind of the mindset back then. So I've heard from a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, especially men, but in some cases, uh, women too, who had, uh, distant, uh, they weren't mean. They would, you know, they weren't, they weren't cruel or anything like that. They were just distant because it, they didn't, they didn't feel like it was their place to raise the kids. That was what mom did. So, um, uh, so they're really happy that, uh, at least one of us had a moment, uh, like I did, with that last rocket, uh, with our father, where we, where we kind of, uh, had, a, ha just had that moment and which was really cool. So were there any other parts of the film that were changed or omitted that you didn't particularly like? Well, I didn't work in a coal mine like they showed. Um, I did that later. I wrote a book called sky of stone, uh, memoir about when I did work in a coal mine. I worked in a coal mine during the summers when I was uh, at Virginia tech. And, um, no, I, I was, I weighed about, I don't know, 125 pounds when I went to Virginia tech. And then I worked between my freshman and sophomore year laying track in the coal mine. And I, uh, and I came back, I weighed about 165 pounds of just solid muscle. 
it was amazing. I could not get in my cadet uniform. I had to go get all, all new cadet uniform. So I really got transformed uh, by doing that. But in the movie, um, they kind of moved all that up. And um, the, the way it was explained to me, the writer uh, and the, the director, Joe Johnston, was that um, there had to be a villain in this movie. And uh, since we really didn't want it to be the father, uh, the villain had to be the coal mine itself. And you can't really have a movie unless the hero, being me, actually confronts the villain. And so they decided that, uh, that they, would, they would fix it so that I would have to go work in the coal mine. So, so that's what they did. And I, I didn't like that, but I understood it. And uh, it actually works uh, quite well. Uh, I've had so many uh, people tell me when, when poor Homer is going, you know, down the man lift and looks up and Splitnik flies over, they just burst into tears. And I thought actually that that was kind of, you know, kind of, uh, I don't want to use that word hokey, but it was, <laughs> I thought it was, but people just <laughs> love that scene, you know. <laughs> so um, I've come to, uh, no, the movie's great. I love the movie. And uh, the neat thing about the movie is it causes a lot of people to go out and also read the book. So <laughs> I got to say the, yeah, the uh, going on that scene this did the whole the whole part of of you just wanting to uh of you just being infatuated with the sky and getting in that elevator and going hundreds of feet below ground every single time was just uh incredible and um yeah that was to me that was the most uh the the most powerful scene was you going down in the uh going down in the elevator yeah, once I, once I started working in the mine, uh, like I said, during the summers, I started to understand why my dad really liked it, because there was like a, a challenge constantly going on. There was always something to do. Um, and so I, I got it that you had to figure out how uh, you move the air through the mine, how difficult that was. I, I, I got it because I got to operate some of the machinery about how all that worked. And this was... Um, called pillar mining that we were doing in there where you, where you, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but you go in and you basically cut in blocks, you bring out the coal and you leave uh, pillars of coal that holds up the roof. And then uh, after you've finished a certain section, you go in and you start pulling these pillars out. That's where you start having accidents. And uh, so I wrote about that in, in uh, rocket boys, the bump they call mountain bumps. And, um, uh, and then as you pull them out, your ventilation changes. So I started to understand uh, how he was, being an intellectual, how he was uh, so motivated and so involved with mining uh, that coal and keeping his men safe. I, I really started to understand so much better about, about who he was and, and why he was the way he was. So going off uh, some of those themes, the elevator theme, and then um, the theme with your relationship with your father in the movie, both in the movie and in your blog posts that we read that you shared on Twitter the other day, uh, it depicted multiple windows where you could easily, uh, you know, have given up, whether it was in your time working the mine or rejection uh, from the Air Force or, uh, you know, even portrayed in the film when all the boys got arrested for the explosion in the forest fire. Well, what were some of those driving forces that you had and some people and relationships that you had that really kept moving you towards your calling? Yeah, I think, well, you know, I was raised by people that um, I like, 
I like to say that they're not, they weren't afraid of very much. Uh, when you stop to think about where they, where they lived and uh, where they worked, um, it, was, uh, it was a place that, uh, if you allowed it, could be kind of a scary place to be raised. But we weren't that way. We were a community. We were a very tight community. We knew it, everybody knew it, each other. Um, and so um, I just always had, I was always kind of an optimistic kind of little guy. I was a little squirt. Uh, or I wore glasses when, when most kids didn't wear glasses, even, even if they had vision problems, just didn't do it. Um, but, um, I was, I had, uh, real thick, uh, Coke bottle glasses. I had about 2,400 in both eyes. And, um, so, um, which is why my brother beat me up all the time, I guess. But anyway, and I don't blame him. I was kind of sneaky. I would sneak around and do things to him all the time. You know, I, I'd, I'd, I'd catch him asleep and just go over and hit him. So I don't blame him for beating me up. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I was just driven to it, but <laughs> but uh, we get along great uh, now, by the way. So we're all good. Um, but um, so I was just always very optimistic and I just, I love life. I still love life. And uh, I always just, uh, any kind of challenge put in front of me, I just kind of try to make it an adventure, including trying to have an interview with a cat. Uh, <laughs> so I <laughs> so, uh, did some IMDB diving uh, after the movie. Uh, and I actually found out that the slag dump where you were testing your rockets still exists. Uh, it's now a huge glass, uh, grassy field where they erected a replica stand, a replica launch pad, and a shed. Um, I'm curious, have you been back? I know that they had a, uh, they had a, a celebration for the town of Colwood or a parade. Um, have you been back any time recently? Let's see. I think the last time I was back was probably about two years ago. Um, yeah, we had a October Sky Festival for I think it was 13 years in Colwood, and um, after the movie came out, um, so I would go up there every year. We had uh, some of the actors uh, come in. Um, Natalie Canada played my mom. She came in, uh, uh, so you know we had um, we had some good times up there every October, and then um, the town itself, uh, the population. I guess there's probably a couple of hundred people there or 2000 when I was there just to show you. So there's, it, it's, it's not, it's just kind of a shell of its old self. Uh, the, the town of Beckley, which you probably know of, um, they wanted to have a rocket boys festival. So uh, we did that for seven years. Last year was theoretically the last year that we had it. Uh, and, um, but it was very popular. We had a lot of Virginia tech students come up and support us on that uh, too, by the way. So, um, but, um, MacDowell County where I grew up, um, is, um, not much like it was, uh, these days. The population is only about 10% what it was when I grew up. Most of the old coal towns are, uh, have fallen down. Uh, not too much mining is done there, uh, anymore. And, uh, so it's kind of sad to go back and, and see it, uh, but nature is reclaiming it. Uh, it's, uh, it's interesting to see these towns that I remember being very vibrant and maybe dating a girl in that town. The town's gone and uh, the woods have uh, taken back over. So it's, it's interesting. interesting. And what about the relationship that you over the years with the Rocket Boys? I mean, so you all in, uh, accomplished this incredible feat, uh, winning the National Science Fair, 
uh, and head out in your different directions. Uh, over the years, have you all stayed in touch uh, aside from just meeting up at, uh, at the festival each year? Yeah, I mean, there were actually six Rocket Boys, uh, not the four like they showed in the movie. They ended up combining a couple of characters. Um, uh, Billy and Quentin were kind of combined into one Quentin character and uh, uh, Odell and Sherman uh, were combined. And so, um, so well, yes and no. I, I, I kind of kept up more with Odell over the years because he's very loquacious and he loves to write and call and everything. So he he, uh, during all the years that I was in the army and so on, I, I didn't go back and, uh, I kind of lost track of them. But then when I started writing the, uh, the book, I thought, you know what, I better kind of let these guys know what's going on and that Universal Studios is already interested in it and all that kind of thing. So I tracked them down and, um, it was just like, uh, uh, that I had uh, been with them the day before. I mean, we instantly connected and uh, it was a lot of fun to talk to them. None of them believe that anybody would be interested in a book uh, written about them. And definitely none of them believe that anybody would make a movie about them. Uh, so uh, that was kind of cool when it, uh, when it actually happened. We've lost, uh, well, Sherman died relatively young. He had polio. He died in his 20s. And um, we just lost Quentin this past summer. Uh, so, um, well, we're kind of old guys, you know, so it's gotta be expected. Uh, I miss them, but I was able to see them every year, uh, during these festivals, which was kind of cool. And then the decision to go to Indianapolis, you know, fr from what it looked like, you hadn't really gone that far away from Colwood. I'm uh -huh. sure all of you were itching to, for an experience to go to Indianapolis. What was that conversation like where it's, Hey, look, one of you are going. And that's it. And how did you come to the decision that you were going to go? Well, there was never any question. I was going. Oh, all right. There you go. <laughs> and what, they did what, have a little bit. I saw that. That's not in the book, but that is in the movie. But I know, honestly, um, one of the things about um, the rockets and, and building them was that the reason that I was, so, uh, I, of course, I love building the rockets and all that. But to me, what was really, really fun was to organize these boys. And, um, and, and keep them going. And that constant challenge because I was the only one, well, Quentin and I were really the only ones really interested in the science and the engineering behind the rockets. The other boys were like, well, that's kind of cool, you know, so yeah, we'll come along. And so it was like, we were kind of, we were always kind of uh, uh, coaxing them along and bringing them along. And then, of course, everybody, uh, now Quentin possibly could have gone but everybody understood that nobody would ever give a medal to Quentin. So, uh, so <laughs> it really kind of <laughs> evolved on me to go up there. Cause I, you know, I, I talk well sometimes. And mm -hmm. so I, uh, I could explain to the judges cause we re I really couldn't drag a rocket out in the parking lot and launch it. Basically our little project was a static project. You had the, the rockets leaning up against the board and explaining it. Um, so really when the judges came around, it was, uh, I, I had to really have a lot of energy and, uh, explain what we were doing and what we had done and convince them that we had actually managed to build these professional rockets. So, um, so, you know, I was kind of about the only one that was capable of doing that. So then a, uh, a young Homer Hickam is in Indianapolis for the first time ever, um, getting set up. He's worked tirelessly put all this together put together a wonderful transition 
And it's actually true that your items were stolen at the National Science Fair. Very true. What was stolen? Did it come to any type of resolution? How did you, how did you fix it in, in, in the short timeline that you had? Well, you know, I, I was from West Virginia, and I just um, never imagined that anybody would steal anything. And so uh, I noticed in the evening that the, the other kids would take down their exhibits and, and lock them up. And um, I thought, well, why do that? That's kind of, you'd have to come in and put them all back up in the, you know, so in the morning. So I just left mine out and nobody told me anything. And so when I came in the morning of uh, the morning before the big, uh, the big uh, uh, judging, they were gone. And so uh, the, the rocket nozzles were what was stolen. And uh, those things were, you know, hard to make. And so um, uh, as far as the resolution is concerned, no, I've never, I thought when the movie came out, especially that I would hear from somebody with a mea culpa from Indiana that would, uh, that would confess to it, but I never did. And so, but it made for a good and true story, but I had to call Colwood and real, real quick um, while they were having a strike, get the, the rocket nozzles made and uh, wow. on a trailways bus and sent up. You know, and they did it in a big hurry. So they weren't quite as refined as the ones that I had displayed, but they were they were good enough. <laughs> I love that. The small town has your back and quick, really, really quick. They got it up to you in Indianapolis. That's it. That, I had the I had never made a long distance call in my life. Never. I didn't have a clue on how to do it. <laughs> I had this guy from Texas uh, that had an exhibit beside mine. Uh, show me how to do it. And I go like you put quarters in this thing, you know, <laughs> we had phones. We weren't that, you know, we had, we had mine phones in Colwood. We, we could call, um, if you were a mine foreman, you had a, you had a, uh, a phone in your house, but it was all, it wasn't long distance. Uh, so, uh, but the, uh, the mine superintendent and the Coke of the, the store, the company store had, uh, long distance phone in it. So, that was the number. I, you know, I called the operator and um, just like uh, the Jim Croce song, you know, operator. <laughs> I want to call Coldwood, West Virginia. And it took a while. <laughs> but we finally got through. <laughs> well, well, I guess there's a first time for everything, you know, and, and what a story. The first time you made a long distance call. Hey, you know, I got to replace rocket nozzles for the National Science Fair. So. Yeah, they answered, <laughs> I got it. as soon as I called, it was like, oh, yeah, Sonny, yeah, we got it. You know, we figured you'd screw up up there in one way. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's awesome. So we're going to transition now into your time as a Hokie. Um, so right off the bat, why did you choose Virginia Tech? And also, in when you – one or got the the gold medal for in the 1960 National Science Fair. There's that scene where the guy comes up to you and goes, "Oh, you know, so and so, Virginia Tech," and and shoves the flyer in your face. Did that happen? <laughs> no, um, that's that's Joe Johnston, the director. He uh, oh no way. <laughs> Je, uh, he decided that um, that I should meet Werner von Braun since I'd never actually met him, and um, that so he concocted that scene afterwards where Dr. Von Brown comes up and shakes my hand. Uh, the actor's name was Joey Giatano. He was actually the special effects guy. And they found out that he looked like a young Werner Von Braun. He really did. 
Uh, and so they, since the, one of the uh, plot lines was the idea of getting a scholarships, uh, and then they knew that I went to Virginia Tech, so they they threw that uh, they threw that in there. The reason I went to Virginia Tech was really my mother and my brother. My brother got a, a football scholarship to Virginia Tech. He was already there. Um, I was so busy with the Rocket Boys and everything, uh, and I was thinking about going to the Air Force Academy. Uh, I got turned down because uh, of my eyes, uh, primarily, and um, so I, I really hadn't. Uh, bothered to figure out what school I was going to go to. I knew I was going to go to one, but I just had not applied. And it worked uh, back then the same way now. You got to apply fairly early, especially in a school like Virginia Tech. There were like 5,000 students at Virginia Tech then. And so it was fairly competitive uh, to get in, and um, especially engineering school. And so uh, my mother applied for me. And uh, so she let me know in the middle of the summer that I was going to Virginia Tech. And I thought, cool, that's great. I don't know anything about the school, but it's great. <laughs> Go Hokies. <laughs> well, West Virginia University, a lot of people go, why, why, why didn't you go to WVU? I'm wondering, what's wrong with you? You know, and it's like, well, it took two days to drive to Morgantown from coal. <laughs> you had to wow. overnight. Um, I mean, there wasn't any really, there weren't any interstates back then. So you're basically on mountain roads all the way up there. Never know why they put that university so far north. It's almost in Pennsylvania. So, um, so most of the kids out of Big Creek um, High School, where I went, um, they either went, well, the guys generally went in the military um, if they wanted to go to college. So they went in the military so they could get the GI Bill. And then uh, if, they, if they could afford to go to, to college or got a scholarship, they typically went to Marshall University or uh, Concord. Um, which was mostly a teacher's college back then. Uh, but um, so those were the two schools. Um, there were some that went to Virginia Tech. It was only 100 miles from Colbert, so it was really the obvious place to go. But you did have to go across the state line. And uh, so, um, but uh, my, it cost, uh, Virginia, Virginia Tech was on the quarter system when I went there. And it cost, I, um, I think it was, $325 a quarter to go there. Wow. So, and that was out of state. So, wow. <laughs> so things have changed just a little bit, you know? <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. Just a little bit. <laughs> wow. And I know, I know uh, from reading that blog post, uh, it was 100 miles and you, you had this scooter that you would go back and forth. Um, yeah. So that's pretty my little, cool. My little Vespa scooter. Uh, <laughs> Clearly, I was a nerd from the get-go. You know, I love that little scooter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I loved Virginia Tech. I really did. Um, uh, when, when I, got there, I mean, you know, anybody goes there, you see the campus and um, the, grill, the drill field and all those big hokey stone buildings around there. And, uh, and to me, Blacksburg was like a, like a city. Uh, it was amazing. Yeah. To me. I mean, it really, did, it really was. Um, and so... Um, but uh, I enjoyed my time there, and uh, I still have uh, a lot of my classmates. We were very close, and um, I still, we still, uh, we mostly email back and forth, but uh, we also call each other, and uh, so it was, uh, it was a great experience, really. So I know you majored in industrial engineering. Was aerospace engineering not available as a major? It was. I started off in uh, aerospace, but um, 
I frankly, once I, is, uh, of course, you just take basic engineering courses and math courses and everything to your junior year, and that's where you hit the, the actual um, uh, branch that you're working in. Uh, but um, I took an aerospace engineering course, and I was kind of bored with it, frankly, because back then, uh, what that was was a study of airfoils primarily, and you spent a lot of time at the drafting board. That was, that was what you did. And um, so, but at that same time was when I started um, building the, can the cannon, the skipper. And um, so um, uh, the industrial engineering department was the, the place where we could actually build this thing, where we could uh, uh, build the forms required and uh, do the green molds and do all of that. And so I, went over there and I really started, I, I liked the professors over there. They were really cool. And also because I had been a rocket boy, uh, I already knew something about welding and uh, using a lathe and a milling machine and all that kind of thing. So I really liked it better over there. It uh, really fit kind of the way I like the hands-on type of uh, engineering. So I switched over there uh, primarily so I could uh, be have uh, access to all of their machines uh, to start working on the skipper. And then I just stayed with it. And uh, I liked it quite a lot. It was a good degree. Um, industrial engineering back then also allowed me to, um, to work with the computer that they had. It was an IBM 1620. Uh, I had to learn Fortran. And so that, that really helped out later in my career that uh, I knew things about computers that most engineers of my era did not know. Uh, so, uh, and I use that um, when I worked for the Missile Command. One of the first thing I did was start working with an IBM 1620 computer. I knew how to work, I knew how to program it, which was pretty cool. So you were a member of Virginia Tech's Corps of Cadets. What went into the decision to join the ranks as opposed to just going the regular civilian route? Yeah, well, the first thing is that um, unless you were a football player or a veteran, you were required to be in the, uh, the Corps of Cadets the first two years. Uh, so it wasn't like a big decision uh, that I was going to be in the Corps. And uh, my brother was not. Uh, he, as a football, he, since he had a football scholarship, he didn't have to be. Uh, most of them were. I'd say about 80% of the football players were in the Corps then, uh, Company H, as I recall. Um, they weren't quite up to the discipline uh, that we <laughs> we had uh, in the rest of the corps, but they were pretty cool guys. Um, but uh, I liked it. I liked um, I liked the fellowship of the corps, and uh, so I stuck with it um, all four years. Um, I ran into that um, eyesight thing again, though uh, I was not able to pursue Air Force ROTC um, after my. Uh, uh, sophomore year, um, and so I knew I was going to have to. Um, it, it, when you came out of Virginia Tech or any place in 1964, you were either going to you already had a uh, a commission that you were going to uh, use, or you were going to be drafted. I mean, that was the fact. So um, I knew on the other end of that, somehow I was going to have to take care of my military obligation. And so what I did was, as soon as I graduated, was to go into the army uh, as a private E1. And uh, uh, went through basic training, AIT, and then OCS, and came out of that as a second lieutenant uh, in the Army. And that's how I ended up over in Vietnam. So you were telling us a little bit about Jim, your brother, playing football at Virginia Tech. And in the movie, Jim plays at West Virginia, but uh, obviously in real life, he plays at Tech. 
And you told us uh, right before we started recording that you tried out for the football team your senior year as well. So I want to hear about your football experience. And then was, uh, was the coach at that time, was it Coach Claiborne? Because I know he coached Coach Beamer um, as well. It was Jerry Claiborne. And, um, and he was an interesting guy. He had actually coached under Bear Bryant. And uh, so later on when I uh, wow. – lived so many years down here in Alabama. I met Bear Bryant. It was kind of cool. And I mentioned that I knew Jerry Claiborne. He liked that. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, I, I was, uh, like, like I, I mentioned earlier, when I started working in the coal mine, I just packed on so much muscle. And uh, I had enough of my brother in me that uh, I, I was, you know, I, I, could, I could hit somebody pretty hard. But I was kind of light. Um, but uh, so we played really, really hard intramural football back then. It was touch football, but it was all, it was tackle. We just kind of killed each other. And I got the thinking, well, I can do this. And I wonder what it'd be like to actually go out for football. So um, in the spring quarter of my senior year, I went out for football (laughs) and got beat to death, Uh, you know, because I didn't, I had, not played in high school. I just played intramural, which is kind of wide open. You just do whatever you're going to do. And so I didn't, I didn't know how to do it. Uh, my brother thought I was, he was still there and, uh, he thought I was crazy. Uh, but, um, but I learned a lot and I ended up being a trainer for the rest because, uh, clearly I didn't have what it took to be on the team or anything like that. But they kind of liked me. I was kind of like a little mascot. And so I became the trainer. Um, I would, you know, wrap ankles and run the whirlpool. And all what, posi- what position did you go out for? I went out for my brother's position. I wanted to be a pulling guard on the offense. <laughs> at, 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 at how much? How much did you weigh at the time? Mm, maybe 165. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but I was muscular, you know. And I, I made up by not being uh, strong or skilled by being slow. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, no, it was, uh, I'm glad I did it. I mean, for one thing, I got to be really good friends with some of the players and, and kind of got insight as to, as to what, how they approached life. And, um, it was, uh, you know, being on a football scholarship, uh, no matter what they say, it's hard. It's really hard. Um, and you know that Billy, the, the time it takes to go practice and, mm-hmm. uh, uh, just be to learn all the stuff that you have to learn and then also go to Virginia Tech and uh, take those classes with those hard professors. It is not easy. And so I'm glad that I did it just because I didn't know these. I knew of them, but I didn't really know them. And so I got mm-hmm. to meet a lot of a lot of the um, especially the freshmen that were coming in because I was kind of put in that category you know, somebody brand new um, and um, made some good friends there. So while we're on the topic of football, uh, I have to ask some of, well, I would say one of every Hokies favorite game day traditions is the Skipper Cannon, which you had a hand in creating uh, the inaugural Skipper Cannon. What was your involvement in that project? Well, you got to remember back then, our big rival was Virginia Military Institute, VMI. Um, And, um, my brother, we laugh about it now that UVA is the big rival. UVA was a joke. 
<laughs> Still are. <laughs> well, yeah. Still are. No, I'm not going there. I am not. <laughs> they, really they really didn't have serious <laughs> but, um But VMI, uh, they were our big rival. And again, we were a small school. We were 5,000 students, and VMI was like 1,200 or something like that. So there wasn't that much discrepancy uh, between us. Uh, but um, they had, we played them every Thanksgiving in what was called the Military Classic of the South in, in Roanoke. And they actually had a train that went between Blacksburg and Roanoke. It was called the Huckleberry Train. And uh, they put our whole cadet corps would get on that train and go to Roanoke. And they called it the Huckleberry because it was so slow you could actually get off and pit pick huckleberries as it went along again that's that was the story but anyway so we were really serious about this game and they actually played it on thanksgiving day and so um for for decades and so uh the vmi corps uh had a little cannon um and uh it was a little pop gun really and um but we used to chant at each other across the field you know and and say bad things about each other and uh, so they would fire this cannon and they, they would say, where's your cannon? Where's your cannon? Where's your cannon? That'd be their chant, you know, and we didn't have an answer to that. So uh, a few of us guys, uh, cadet corps decided, well, by golly, we're going to build our own cannon. I have to tell you, it's just like the rocket. That's why I never written anything about it. Just like the rocket boy story. Everybody was against us doing it. And um, the uh, definitely the administration of Virginia Tech was like, no, you can't do that. And we did it anyway. That's why I went over to the IE department. I made friends with those folks over there <clears throat> and um, got some plans for a Civil War cannon. And uh, uh, we thought it needed to be made out of brass. We weren't that smart. You know, during the Civil War, they weren't brass cannons. That was Napoleonic War. <laughs> so we went all the way back there. But anyway, it was easier to cast brass, uh, brass than, than iron or steel. Uh, so we collected up all this brass from uh, the cadets, you know, your breastplates and your belt buckles and all this stuff that you have uh, excess. And um, also, um, my dad actually donated some brass from his coal mine, uh, old brass gears. And um, um, ultimately, we, we, uh, we designed this thing and we had it cast there in Roanoke. And um, it was a it turned out to be the biggest game cannon in the world. We weren't really going for that. But that's what it turned out to be. They had the, um, uh, the there's a, a prison in Virginia that makes all of these Civil War carriages, and I think they still do that. And uh, so we were able to get one of those carriages, and then um, we had we didn't know how to fire the thing. After we built it, it's like, does anybody know to actually how to fire this thing? <laughs> so... Um, so we had it, and we were going to surprise the VMI core with it, but um, nobody knew how to fire it. And so I, I devised these little bombs that we take, like these mustard squeeze bottles, pack that full of gunpowder, put uh, a cherry bomb on top with a fuse sticking out, and throw it down the barrel. It worked great. It was terrific. <laughs> the, the, only pro <laughs> the only problem was we tested it on the golf course at Virginia Tech. And, uh, oh, my God. And so, uh, it wasn't loud enough, and so we just kept packing more powder into it and everything until it was appropriately loud. And so, um, so come the big loud. day, the great big day, at uh, 1963, the, the, the game. Um, so VMI, they march in, and we march in, and, uh, and then they drag out their little cannon, and they 
they fire it and they go, where's your cannon? Where's your cannon? And we dragged in the skipper and turned it around. And, um, uh, I put in a double charge. I was so excited and, <laughs> uh, and we fired that thing. And, um, it was probably the biggest charge that that cannon ever had. It actually lifted about an inch off. It was, it was very heavy, weighed a ton, uh, off the ground when it went, the shock wave went just like through all the football players who were trying to exercise <laughs> out on the field. It, um, went up and cracked the glass in the, uh, in the press box on the other side, uh, it hit so hard. And after all the smoke cleared and everything, our cadets went, here's our cannon. <laughs> 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 but um, but awesome. uh, uh, we won that game that day. And um, so that started the, uh, uh, the tradition of firing the cannon after every touchdown. So we did that that day. I almost ran out of charges. I think we scored about <laughs> eight, seven or eight touchdowns. So unbelievable wow. story. <laughs> I, I think I think anyone who's been to at least Lane Stadium, Skipper will sneak up on you if you're not paying attention. Yes, I mean, I mean that was that. That bang, I mean, Skipper packs a mean punch. Yeah, that's Skipper, too. Uh, Skipper won. Uh, they fired it. They f- finally figured out how to properly fire it. Uh, so they, they put a touch hole in the back of it and actually started shoving uh, powder down the, the barrel and then uh, putting in wadding on top, and, um, which was a more appropriate way to fire it, but uh, it also created more pressure on the inside. And so over the years, I think it was like 96 or seven, something like that. It finally, it had a manufacturing flaw in it where they held the cannon uh, form. And so um, after a while that blew out and uh, fortunately nobody was killed. It was, uh, it, it could have killed somebody, but when that blew out, um, they decided, well, they needed another skipper. So, um, so one of the alumni uh, slips my mind who did it, but um, they paid to, to uh, cast another skipper. This time it was steel, and it's a more it's a professional uh, cannon that is properly um, uh, designed to take a lot of pressure and also to fire it. So they pull a lanyard now, which uh, has a a uh, hammer that falls and you know causes uh, uh, the powder to go off. So the uh, young men and women who um, who do that. They're very proud of the skipper crew. I, you know, when I go to the football game, I generally go out and hang out with the skipper crew because they don't let them, they let them fire it, I think for the national anthem. And then they're required to go outside the stadium. So I tend to go over there and hang out with them. And they're, they're great young people and they just love what they do. And they, you know, I feel it's like it's, I, I had we had no idea when we did this, we thought maybe we'd do it that one time. We had no idea that the tradition of the skipper would, uh, would ever occur. As you look back at your time at Virginia Tech, um, what were some of your favorite memories or experiences that you had in Blacksburg outside of, of class or just enjoying the New River Mountains in, uh, in general? Well, let's see. I practically lived at the Lyric Theater. And, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, business used to be called pre-engineering. Uh, it should have been, or post-engineering. Yeah. I guess. <laughs> Um, but, um, so all the business guys would come and, uh, you know, I'd be there trying to study and, uh, they'd go, Oh, let's go see a flick, Sonny, as they call me. And I went, okay, all right. So, <laughs> um, we would also, um, 
do uh, pizza runs. Uh, I think there's still a pizza place there right at the end of the uh, avenue that leads down to the World War II Memorial. There was, um, I think it was called Oscars. There was a big O, I mean, big O pizza back there. And uh, I never had a pizza until I went to Blacksburg. And really? So, wow. Uh, no, I didn't know anything about it. Didn't know they existed. So, um, so at night we would, uh, so, so this is, this is kind of the way it went. Um, all right. In terms of, we had taps every night at 11 o'clock. You were supposed to be in bed, but, uh, so all the business students were in bed <laughs> and then, uh, the industrial engineers, we went to bed next and then, um, mechanical engineers and then the chemical engineers and then the aerospace engineers and the architects never went to bed. So, uh, so we were up late at night trying to study because we had all this other stuff that we were doing with the cadet corps. We were very busy with all that, all the extracurricular stuff. We just had a lot of stuff that we were doing. And so we would make these wonderful pizza runs at night. Uh, and, uh, those, those were great fun. Also, um, I had one little group and we explored all the steam tunnels underneath the Virginia tech campus. So when you go down there and you see all that graffiti, we're partly responsible for that. And, uh, we found out that we could actually enter the, the, uh, I think it's Davidson. That's the chemistry, chemistry building. I don't think it exists now, but anyway, it was down on the South end toward the, the duck, the duck pond end of, uh, of the, uh, drill field. We found out that we could actually get into that building through the steam tunnels. And um, we got some interesting chemicals out of there. <laughs> so, so it was kind of it was kind of interesting to go into our professor who was busily trying to flunk us out and and uh, and look through his desk to see what the <laughs> were going to be. And, uh, not that we ever did that. That's a lie. I just told a big lie. So, <laughs> did you know? I have. I know, I've read up on them a little bit. I know. Uh... Uh, a couple of friends who've been down there. I never really toyed with the idea of going down there. I was a little chickened out, and I know that there's some uh, some legal ramifications if you get caught down there these days. Yeah, they've, got, <laughs> they've got they've got like you know steel bars over it now, but uh, but back then you could get in through a manhole, and actually you could get in from some of the buildings. You would just open it up where their little utility closet was, and there was another door, and it was like Shazam! Look at this. It's amazing. <laughs> Uh, every once in a while i would study and actually take an exam but i i mean we had a lot of fun (laughs) in the steam tunnels wow uh yeah yeah no no i would not study no i didn't study (laughs) i was about i was about to say it was kind of dark in there (laughs) sons of studying in the steam tunnels (laughs) (laughs) that's right you can't call yourself a a hokey unless you've been through the steam tunnel guys you gotta (laughs) you gotta get yourself I guess we got the next. I guess we we know what we're doing next time in Blacksburg. No, That's no, right. Don't, uh, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> no, they will. They will arrest you now. So. Yeah. Oh boy. So, Mr. Hickam, I uh, I know that you were the class ring namesake for the 2002 uh, class at Virginia Tech, and I was a class officer, and that was one of the coolest traditions that I got to be a part of. Um, and Ray Smoot was our class namesake and he was from the class of 1969 but what was that experience like just having the homer h hickam collection this entire ring collection named after you it's pretty cool 
that was pretty cool. That was just great cool. And uh, because um, my own ring dance had been something of a disaster, uh, not, in, not really entirely, but the girl that I took, you're supposed to take the girl you're going to marry. That was what, what we were told. And that was kind of the tradition. <laughs> the girl that I took, like, she had so much fun at my ring dance. She went with somebody else at the next ring dance and married him. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so, uh, so it was kind of cool taking Linda and my wife there and, uh, and just, uh, you know, dressing up in the tux and seeing all the guys mm -hmm. in, the, in their dress uniforms and their tuxedos and all the, I mean, you know, I mean, it just, I, I mean, there's just not too many, uh, universities that have such a wonderful tradition as our ring dance it's just it's just amazing and uh so yeah it was very exciting for me to go back and do that yeah it, it's it's cool just looking at the uh, the list of names who have been honored as namesakes in the past as well i mean most recently we've had coach beamer and coach foster i think coach foster is either uh i think he was last year or he's this upcoming year and uh, so that's pretty special. And then I was reading that you had a uh, you have a scholarship for the Corps of Cadets. Um, so that's one of the ways that you stay involved with Virginia Tech. I know that you um, stay involved with the College of Engineering. But what are kind of just like high level? What are some ways that you've stayed involved uh, with Virginia Tech? Yeah, it's uh, primarily through again our our class, uh, the unit that I was in uh, at Virginia Tech was Squadron A, and uh, we were very very close uh, and still are. And so we've tried to get together over the years. We have reunions every couple of years. They have a, like a military um, weekend when they have, um, we have a football game. If you've seen the guys, the old, the old guard march in. Um, so I've been involved uh, with that. And, and also um, the, um, I've gone and made uh, talks to the cadet corps a couple of times over the years and I'll, and then our scholarship. Um, our scholarship, the Homer Hickam, it's actually named after my dad, but since we have the same name, uh, I, I can get away with that. And uh, so uh, that scholarship, um, we hear from the students that get those scholarships, really cool. They write us a letter and uh, uh, try to get us to adopt them and take them to the Virgin Isles. No, not really. But anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> we always send them a Christmas present. And uh, so it's really cool to know that, uh, that we're helping uh, some students, uh, you know, go to school. Good prosum. So uh, we know that your mother, kind of moving into uh, after life after Virginia Tech, uh, one of the things that I want to ask about, we know that your mother loved Myrtle Beach and that you've, you know, been at St. John's for a number of years. What made you select St. John's as, you know, your, your go-to destination when you can get away? Well, uh, Linda and I had always wanted to get a place down in the Caribbean, um, the, uh, I actually have property in Honduras on a little island called Guanaja that um, I, I wrote about a lot and uh, went down to. Um, but um, we kind of thought ultimately that it would be good to get something in U.S. territory. And um, so we, we had gone to St. John a couple of times uh, diving. And when um, the wherewithal of the ability that I had to actually buy a nice place down there, um, through, through Rocket Boys and October Sky, um, we we already knew the island a little bit, and so um, we uh, we ended up buying a place down there. Um, have really loved it. The people there are just splendid people, and um, uh, of course the uh, 
well, not of course, but our house did get blown away by uh, Hurricane Irma. Um, but uh, we have rebuilt, and uh, hopefully when all this uh, gets over with travel restrictions and so on, we can get back down there. I don't know how much longer we can, uh, we can keep it. Uh, Huntsville, Alabama is really our home, um, and we love it here. We have a lot of friends, and uh, so this is, this is uh, probably where we will spend our, most of our days yet to come. So you graduate from Virginia Tech in 1964, and then your next step is to go into the military and serve in Vietnam, and uh, you're on active active duty for six years. You rise to the rank of captain. I know that you wanted to probably focus on uh, you know, y- your career within science at this point, but obviously you have to focus on the military. What were some of the lessons and takeaways that you had from your time on active duty and your time in Vietnam? Well, I mean, uh, when I was over in Vietnam, of course, that was my focus with Vietnam. But um, uh, and in terms of the, the six years of active duty that I had, there's a lot to learn, you know, in the military. Um, uh, so you're constantly being educated about the different weapon systems. And um, also you're challenged if you're an officer to to learn how to uh, manage your your people uh, properly and take care of them. So um, a lot of things that um, when when I uh, became a lieutenant and then later a captain in the Army, um, I could reflect on how my dad did things. And so um, he, he, was a, he was a good manager and he took care of his people. And uh, so a lot of times I would just think about what would my dad do in this case? And um, one of the things that uh, in, in Vietnam was that uh, I would never, ever let my, my soldiers do anything that I wouldn't do. And that included filling sandbags and digging ditches and the whole thing. You know, I would get down there and do it with them. And uh, I got a lot of loyalty out of that. And, um, and, I, and that really works with, when you're trying to lead uh, men under a very stressful situations you have to be out there with them you can't uh, you can't hold back um, one of the things that happened in Vietnam was that um, I managed to um, accidentally get a bridge blown up <laughs> when I was first over there and um, it wasn't my fault but um, but they blamed it on me anyway and so uh, now, I'll tell you a quick story quick story is there was this rickety old bridge that the French had built and we had convoys coming across what was called the Mangyang Pass, trying to cross this rickety old bridge. And um, it was dangerous. And so um, uh, my sergeant, uh, we guarded it. I was in an armor cab unit and we, we guarded this bridge and some other bridges and up and down the roads. And my, my uh, sergeant convinced me that, um, that we ought to shoot at that bridge and knock it down. And I agreed with him. So we did. Well, the French should have bought, and, uh, built a better bridge. Is what I'm, what I'm kind they, of. They did. They came out and built a Bailey Bridge, and it was like they did it in a day. It was, it was perfect. So um, I got yelled at uh, because of that, and uh, so I spent the whole year out in the field. They did not want to see my face in base camp, which was fine with me. I didn't want to be there, and uh, so that was kind of interesting right off the bat. That happened like the second month I was over there. But sometimes you just had to do that kind of thing. You had to. If you're looking out for your people, and uh, we knew that eventually that bridge was going to fall down with a tanker on it or a deuce and a half or five ton or something was going to cause that to fall down, and, and our superiors would not allow 
the Corps of Engineers or the engineers to come in there and fix it. They just wouldn't for whatever reason. And so we just took kind of took the law in our own hands. But that's what you have to do sometimes and just take the flag for it. And they still gave me a bronze star, so it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so upon returning from Vietnam, what were your responsibilities as a NASA aerospace engineer and how did it compare to building rockets, say, as a member of the Big Creek Missile Agency? Well, it was kind of cool. Um, I didn't start working for NASA until I was 38 and uh, didn't ever think I was going to get the chance to, to do it. Um, but remember, I said that uh, when I took industrial engineering, I was, um, I was trained on this old IBM 1620. And so I knew Fortran uh, and uh, some other computer languages. Uh, so I was over in Germany. I was actually working. I, I had um, decided that I, uh, to get a promotion, I had dropped the, the Army Missile Command and was actually working over in the Ar- uh, as a civilian engineer for the uh, Army Training Command over in uh, Germany. And there I uh, programmed a computer uh, to do some actually management things uh, for the Corps of Engineers. And so I'd always wanted to work when my three years were up there, I always wanted to work for NASA. So just on a whim, I sent an application into uh, Marshall Space Flight Center here in Huntsville. And it turned out they were looking for a fellow that actually had a background in the computer systems that I uh, had worked with over in Germany. And uh, so that was going to fly on a, uh, a vehicle uh, spacecraft called the Space Lab, which was designed uh, in Germany and France. So um, it was just a fluke. And if it hadn't happened, I would not have had a good ending to Rocket Boys or October Sky, right? Yeah, I had to go work for NASA. Just it was meant to be. So they brought me over here to uh, work on the Space Lab computer systems. It didn't take too long before, um, well, I started working with the astronauts and um, in uh, the neutral buoyancy simulators, scuba instructor. So I worked with them in this big water tank, 40 feet deep, 75 feet across, where we would simulate weightless conditions. So I knew a lot of the astronauts. So after we got the space lab designed and it was going to be launched, it was like, okay, we got to train the astronauts in the space lab itself or in our simulators. And um, how are we going to do that? And I went, I know, I think, you know, I've worked with them and I know space lab intimately, so I can do that. So um, we started a, uh, what's called a manned systems branch where we um, figured out how to train uh, the astronauts on, the space lab, and then later the scientific payloads they flew. And that was kind of cool because after our first uh, missions and so on, we would change out every experiment in the space lab. That was kind of its advantage. It would go up for, not like the space station today, where essentially all of the hardware is up there and you have to work with that, with the different experiments. We would change out complete space lab. And with a module, it went to the back of the space shell. So, um, when they were completely changed out, that means that we had all of these scientists out there. Um, we called them PIs, principal investigators, and somebody had to go out there and figure out what they were doing and how they were going to train the astronauts to do it. And so that became my job was to go out to these places like Japan. That's why I spent so many t- much time over there and Russia later and um, try to figure out what these scientists were going to do we're trying to do and then help them not only train the crew to do it, but also to help them build 
um, something that would work in zero G. So that was, that was a lot of fun. And so I ended up doing that. And, um, and then the Hubble, of course, the, when the Hubble went up and was nearsighted, then I was really in a good place since I knew most of the astronauts and um, had worked with them. And also the, the scientists that um, a lot of the scientists that had worked also on the Hubble also worked on Space Lab. So I was perfectly positioned to go on the repair team, the Hubble repair team, and figure out how to go up and repair it, and then how to train the astronauts to go do it. So that was a very interesting part of my career, needless to say. So you are the author of over a dozen books ranging from all sorts of categories, the the Rocket Boy memoirs, and if I'm correct, scuba diving even. What inspired you to first start writing? I love to write. I always did. Um, uh, in the third grade, I had my own little newspaper there in Colwood, so it was all good. I probably, I might have been more inclined to become like an English professor or something like that if Sputnik hadn't happened, but <clears throat> Sputnik kind of spun me off like a lot of kids back then because they didn't call it STEM back then, but that's what it was. It was all of a sudden, we need more engineers and we need uh, more people in the technical field, scientific field. So a lot of us at that point, got spun off into these really uh, uh, opening uh, employment possibilities. Um, I went to Virginia Tech, and uh, I liked my uh, I liked engineering. It was fine, uh, but I uh, I wrote for the college newspaper there. I had my own column. It's called Sound Off, and uh, so that was a lot of fun. And I and I you know honed some of my skills then. So it was just always a natural thing for me to write. I always loved it, and. Uh, I, I was able to uh, to do it pretty well. So to put a to put a bow on, you know, kind of everything that you've accomplished in your life. I mean, you've lived an incredibly full life and have done so many different things in in different fields and and ex- extremely incredible experiences. What is something that moving forward you haven't done yet, or that you want to do in the future? Well, um, I'd like to have another number one New York Times bestseller. That'd be cool. Uh, <laughs> I keep working in that direction. But, you know, Rocket Boys kind of uh, really is a book that kind of almost transcends its author. It was a unique story. And uh, so I've had my, uh, uh, and then Hollywood got interested in it. So I kind of had that experience. And I've, I've learned enough over the years to know that uh, once you've had a big success like that, you shouldn't keep trying to repeat it because it's probably not going to happen and you shouldn't get disappointed about that. So um, I do, uh, I do love still to write. And now I have, you know, I have the flexibility of writing uh, pretty much whatever I want to. And um, so one of the things, so I want to stay busy with that. I want to stay very active. I still go out uh, every summer in Montana and hunt uh, dinosaurs. Uh, Found two T-Rexes so far and a little team that I'm, with have wow. so that's always fun so i have a lot of things that i just i do uh, i still do um, as best i can and um, as, you, as you get older you naturally slow down a little bit but i'm you know still still going pretty good and uh so yeah i uh it's not like that i want to accomplish some huge big thing right now i just uh, like what i'm doing i like my life and um, so, um, so it's good. And I like helping young people too. Um, I love the scholarships uh, that I have at, uh, at Virginia Tech. I also have one at Marshall University. 
And um, uh, also I go out, uh, I'm on the board at Space Camp, so I go out there and uh, work with the space campers. And um, we built a little neutral buoyancy uh, simulator there called the Underwater Astronaut Trainer. So I go out sometimes and go diving with the kids uh, in there. So just a lot of things still going on. And uh, I think that's, that's the key is to just stay active as, as much as you can, be intellectually challenged. Don't let your, don't, I just can't imagine retiring. Uh, because to me, that's like a death sentence. Um, uh, I, I've got to have something that I'm interested in and, and uh, is a challenge. So I've got a number of them out there. I've been asked to adapt um, a movie into a, uh, to novelize a movie. I can't mention the movie, but uh, uh, I'm, I'm kind of intrigued with that. I've never done that before. So, uh, so I might uh, agree to do that. And uh, I like having a deadline. So I'll definitely have a deadline with that. So, <laughs> so we're going to move into a segment here called rapid fire. And uh, we're going to ask you a question. And the first thing that comes to your mind, uh, just give it us an answer right away. And uh, we have a couple of these lined up, but first rapid fire is presented by Sharky's Blacksburg where good friends go stop in at Sharky's wing and rib joint for the best burgers, the best sandwiches and the best wings around they got everything you need there. Shout out to Sharky's. Shout out to Sharky's back patio and side patio. Now open. Get in there. Set up your reservation at Sharky's Blacksburg. So, Mr. Hickam, rapid fire. Favorite food? Favorite food. Well, see, I can't rapid fire that because then I have to start thinking about it. At a certain age. <laughs> All right, pizza. Does that work? Pizza. <laughs> first ever pizza. First ever pizza was in Blacksburg, so that's fine. That works. Uh, favorite book or author? Oh, Henry Rowe, John Steinbeck. That was pretty rapid. Pretty rapid. Yeah, <laughs> right, right, right off the cuff. Okay. Fa- fa- favorite movie? Uh, local hero. You probably never heard of. Look it up. Okay, local hero. I'm going to look that up. Favorite TV show? Favorite, uh, the Poirot, Poirot series. Um, it's a mystery series. It's um, Agatha Christie. Uh, so, yeah, we love, we love that. We watched it. It was like, oh, oh, I'll give you a second one. I, I, I love The Office, too. Oh, yes. Yes. Love yes. The Office. Okay. <laughs> love The Office. That's great. <laughs> The same characters in the office were in my office at NASA. I recognize all those people. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I love that. Fantastic. And then, so curious, where do you get your music? Do you listen on Apple? Do you listen to Spotify? Are you a CD guy? Where do you get your music? Um, I just go, uh, Alexa, play me some. <laughs> High tech. <laughs> shut up. Alexa, shut up. <laughs> who, uh, and who is your who's your favorite musician or what's your favorite album there's actually a group down in texas called the rocket boys no, no way, no way. <laughs> okay they're great so, uh, alexa roger clemens uh, uh, thank you uh, <laughs> what a, and then these last three are uh are are the quarantine edition of our questions. So since quarantine has started, what have you been binge watching, whether it be Netflix, whether it be Hulu, what are you what are you what are you crushing right now? I actually did binge watch The Office. Oh, okay. okay. Over quarantine. <laughs> I'm in the ninth season, right? 
Ah, <laughs> uh, so no more Michael so, Scott. So no more Michael oh, Scott. No, uh, Michael's gone. Uh, mm-hmm. So, uh, but Dwight is my favorite character. I am. Uh, he's the best. <laughs> you gotta let it. You gotta let us know what you think when you get to the finale. It's an oh, unbelievable, okay. unbelievable right. series. Well, I'm so sorry for Jim. Jim and Pam. I don't know, mm-hmm. What about uh, Sons of Snacks? What's your? What are you snacking on right now? Well, I, you know, I, I still like peanut butter. I love peanut butter. So I'm liable to put peanut butter on anything. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, peanut butter and a bagel, peanut butter and, you know, whatever. So, uh, so yeah, I love that. Um, I, I try not to snack too much, you know. It's not, I'm trying to, to, to keep a good weight. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, uh, does uh, gin and tonic count as a snack? That counts. That counts. That counts. Okay, I'm there. Okay. (laughs) One. Only one. Only one. One. And I mix in, by the way, I mix in um, lime. I mix in um, zinc. You can get zinc in liquid form. Put that in there. And uh, so I call that Zinko Shine. That was our final propellant with the Rocket Boys. Zinko Shine. So I called my little, oh, and also cherry juice, which is good for arthritis. So, so okay. that's what I have every night, and it was kind of like I look forward to that. And uh, it's five o'clock somewhere, you know that kind there of thing. So, uh, Always, it's fine. <laughs> and what about uh, self improvement? So during the quarantine, you're spending more time with the family. You're spending more time with yourself. What have you taken up or or been doing uh, over the quarantine? Well, um, my wife and I over the years have adopted a number of cats. So oh. we, we work with uh, Forgotten Felines. It's a feral cat uh, rescue. Uh, so uh, believe me, our days are full, even in the pandemic. We've <laughs> taken care of these crazy cats. You saw one of them earlier in the interview. And uh, so, and also, you know, we're, I've got a fish pond. I got to take care of the goldfish. And uh, self-improvement, I don't know. I, I haven't really done much. I should. I should learn more Spanish. Learn uh, more Spanish? I, well, I lived in Puerto Rico. I should know it. I lived in Puerto Rico for a while, and uh, I spoke great Spanglish while I was down there. Um, <laughs> and it'll come back to me. I, I'm better. My German is better than my Spanish, but uh, I should have taken the opportunity. But I really have been working on a couple of books, so that's kind of been taking my time. And then guys like you call me up, and, you know. We, we I'm sorry. We're taking away from your Spanish time. Taking away from my time to learn Spanish. You know? That's our fault. That's our bad. That's our bad. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, uh, <adios>. so, <laughs> adi- <laughs> so the last the last section we have here is uh, letters from the lunch pail. So these are different questions that we've gotten uh, from we alumni go. or folks that uh, just wanted to write in and get some answers. And the first comes from my father. Russ Mitchell wants to know, in your time growing up in Colwood, West Virginia, and spending much time in and around the mine, which wasn't your calling card. Were there any qualities or lessons learned from that experience that you applied to your career later? Well, I think I mentioned the, the fact that I grew up in this town where everybody should have been afraid, but weren't. So I ended up writing a book called We Are Not Afraid and uh, talked about the principles of life there in Colwood, which were, uh, we were proud of who we are. Um, we were, we actually were very proud of what our town did. We we dug out the coal that made steel and we knew that was important. And, um, we were taught at an early age to stand up for what you believe and, uh, not to be afraid to, to voice that. And, uh, um, I think the, the strongest thing that we learned was that we, we kept our families together and the family unit was, you know, even though my father was distant, I never ever thought my father was going away. 
My father was going to be there, you know, and the, the family unit was going to be there. And that was true with every little house down the valley in Colwood. That, that family unit stayed together. And so that, and then we were kind of um, a very tight knit community. And um, so I knew that I always had that support system there. The teachers at the Colwood School had been there for generations and they had seen all these, our brothers and sisters and everybody going through. And so they, we were all kind of connected. And that's one of the things I liked about Virginia Tech too, when I went down there was, uh, and why I kind of really worked well within the cadet corps system was we were a unit and we were, you know, kind of us against them <laughs> type of thing a little bit. And um, so it, uh, it, it was a lot like living in Colwood with, to go and be in the Virginia Tech Corps cadets. That was, uh, you know, we were all just in it together. Um, so, yeah, there were a lot of, le- and, and also I have to say that uh, there was a spiritual side uh, to all of that. Uh, in Colwood, um, we, we, were, we all went to church and we trusted in God, but we, we knew to rely on ourselves. And we were kind of taught that, 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 that just asking uh, for, God to intervene that doesn't that didn't work you you have to learn Amen. how to do that yourself right but you mm-hmm. know you you also know that 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 he's still up there he or she um and uh so um so that was also true in the cadet corps uh that uh we had that kind of a spiritual side not I want I don't want to say a relig- religious side per se because the religion didn't really matter what really mattered was that we felt like that there was something bigger than ourselves that was kind of looking out for us. And that's always good to know. So we have uh, two questions from Center City Hokie. Uh, the first one being, what do you think the lasting effects of last week's launch will be on private aerospace groups? Well, that was absolutely huge. I met um, Elon Musk actually when he was here for Space Camp back in the you did. 90s. And uh, so I had no idea that Elon was going to go off and do something like this. It was pretty (laughs) cool. Uh, And it really has revolutionized uh, space travel, Uh, being able to recover a rocket. I never, NASA would have never done that, not in a million years. Uh, So uh, to actually have, um, to to be able to risk all your money like Elon did to build a a system now that where we can recover the booster has just, revolutionized uh, the approach to space travel uh, or being able to afford it. Uh, so, um, so it was really, really important that Bob and Doug got up there safely and they did. And, um, and I'm just really, really proud that uh, our country did no other. It just wouldn't have happened. I mean, the Chinese would love to be able to do this, but they're not. Um, when they do, it'll be heavily subsidized by the government. Here's Elon just risking his money, and uh, here's all these young, and they are very young, these young rocket boys and rocket girls out there in California, now down in Texas, uh, building these amazing, amazing rockets. But we have some other companies like Blue Origin coming along. That's Jeff Bezos' company. Um, they're also doing some very interesting things. So. Um, if it was up to me, what NASA would do now would be to build nuclear rockets not, and get out of the chemical rocket business entirely. We don't really need to be in that business. And I, I, and I push for that. Um, every once in a while, vice president will call me. Uh, it's kind of cool to see on your phone White House. <laughs> so, uh, and, you know, he's, uh, Mike's been the one that's really kind of pushed um, our program along big time by coming up with the project 
Artemis. I'm not quite sure that we're going the way that I would go, uh, but um, but nonetheless, he's done a great job there and uh, kind of pushed NASA ahead. But I think NASA ought to just not forget the chemical rockets and start building nukes. If we're really serious about going to Mars, uh, we don't we won't go on chemical rockets. That's the pipe dream. It'll have to be nuclear. Uh, rocket systems it's just too far out there otherwise so uh, but uh, we're going back to the moon which makes me very happy I'm a kind of a lunophile which is uh, uh, means that I like the moon and um, uh, so I what I want to do is to build little coal woods on the moon I want to have little mining towns on the moon and then I want to go up there and be the mayor of one of those towns that's my yeah that's what I want to do that's my dream there you go That's awesome. So part two of his question, question you kind of touched on it, but uh, he says, will we see the government reach out past SpaceX and Blue Origin and start seeing other tech giants get in the game? Yeah, well, you know, uh, NASA is really kind of a contracting agency. They basically go out and hire companies to do the work. Uh, there, there, is, there is some in-house stuff done, the original initial design, but ultimately uh, we do hire uh, commercial uh, companies to go to go do the work. Um, we also get involved with international um, uh, uh, outfits like, um, you know, the European Space Agency and JAXA, the Japanese Space Agency and so on. And we've worked with the Russians a lot as well. But I think, the, I really do think that this, um, the SpaceX model has so revolutionized um, our approach to uh, space that, um, I mean, NASA hasn't really caught up yet, and but they will. And uh, uh, so, I, I see, I see down the line much more, less design inside NASA, and uh, more um, just telling the commercial companies what they want, and then, uh, and then purchasing that uh, that hardware. And then a question back to football, because it always comes back to football, from John Cranham. <laughs> How often do you get back to Blacksburg to cheer on the Hokies? And do you have any plans to come back uh, next fall? Us three, the Sons of Saturday, we'd love to get you uh, back for a game and uh, do a video with you for a score prediction. Yeah, I usually go back once a year uh, to see a game and um, uh, really enjoy my – like I said, I hang out with the Skipper crew mostly when I'm there. Uh, But um, I don't have any plans this year because I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, uh, Mm -hmm. so – but um, I'll try to get up. I'll try to get up there. Well, if you do get up there, you mentioned earlier in the podcast that you spent a lot of time at the Lyric Theater. <laughs> and for the Penn State game, right now, the Sons of Saturday are looking at doing a live show at the Lyric Theater. Oh, cool. uh, the, the, the night before the Penn State game, we know what's going on with COVID right now. Things are a little bit unsure. But should you come to the Penn State game, We'd love to have you at the Lyric Theater. We'd love to see you. That sounds um, great. There should be a chair in there actually named after me, you know? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I'll tell so you, fo- engineering school was so hard. I mean, we had to do some things to kind of just break out of it every once in a while. And going to see the a flick at the, at the Lyric Theater, it used to be uh, really funny to go because um, – uh, the students used to, I don't know, do they still do this? We used to talk back to the screen and uh, with, uh, 
the actors would say something and somebody would yell out something funny about it and or something crude. A little improv. And that, yeah, it was improv. It really was. So it was more fun to go to the Lyric Theater to watch some really bad movies just to hear the students yell at the screen. <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> I don't know if I ever heard that when I went to the, <laughs> went to the Lyric, but maybe the next time I'll, I go, I'll, I'll talk back to the screen. <laughs> Speaking of movies... Um, this, the final letter from the lunch pail today comes from me. And I, my question for you is what was being on the set of the October sky film? Like, and I've seen the picture with you and Jake Gyllenhaal. What's Jake Gyllenhaal like? Um, being on a set was just a lot of fun. I learned a lot. Um, one thing I learned, it's really hard to make a movie. It is hard work, really hard work. And they spend, so much time just setting up every scene and uh it's uh and they everything has to be perfect and especially when you have a director like joe johnston who um, went on and did jurassic park 3 and captain america and all those uh, uh movies um he was really a, a tough director and so uh, i was very very impressed by that um so what was jake gyllenhaal really like well in the first place he was only 16 uh, when he made the movie, and he was really a sweet uh, boy. He came out of a Hollywood family. His father was a director, and his mother was screenplay writer, Naomi. And um, the other boys were actually in their, their 20s. And um, Chad Lindbergh probably the best known of the, the other boys. He was in Fast and Furious and a couple of other movies. And um, But um, poor Jake, uh, he, he was in high school there and he had to take uh, classes. I remember him taking calculus and I think French while he was on set. And oh, so wow. he was, and also um, we filmed it very close to Oak Ridge, Tennessee and uh, all the teenage girls there knew that there were these young actors and they were kind of after them. And so the other three boys every night could be found at the Oak Ridge Walmart um, hanging out with these girls and Jake had to go back to his hotel room with his mother. And, uh, <laughs> so if Jake looks like he's angsting a lot during this movie, he actually was, <laughs> 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 he didn't have to act too much, but he's a very sweet uh, young man. I've talked to him any number of times after the, after that. And I'm so pleased that he had such a successful career. His parents did not want him to go into the movie business. They were just dead set against it. So, so he was kind of having his Rocket Boys uh, moment <laughs> with that movie in a lot of ways. So he could identify uh, with uh, the character that he was playing. That's fantastic. So as we, as we wind down here, I wanted to give you an opportunity. Um, and thank you so much. Um, just, uh, I know we weren't going to be able to fit everything into, you know, we're going on, an hour 30 plus here to talk about your life, but what an incredibly full life. Um, and just a pleasure to sit down and speak with you. Tell us a little bit, you know, shout outs, any shout outs for you or upcoming events or where we can um, follow the future endeavors of uh, Mr. Homer Hickam. Well, we try to keep our uh, website up. That's homerhickam.com. You have to know how to spell Hickam. Uh, so uh, H-I-C-K-A-M. And um, if you look in my 1964 yearbook, you will see that they misspelled my name. Uh, I, oh. still, I still haven't forgiven them for that. But, <laughs> but anyway, um, so um, uh, the last book I had was Carrying Albert Home. 
which was the story, uh, the somewhat true story of a man and his wife and her alligator. That was my parents. My mom owned a, uh, an alligator uh, and uh, they carried him home. And so it's that story. And it's oh, been yeah. translated now. I think we have 18 international publishers with it. It was a bestseller. Uh, that came out in 2015, so it's been a while since I've had a new book out. But I'm working on a couple of things. But, yeah, you can go out. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. You know, I try to stay out of trouble. Uh, it's hard sometimes on those things. And um, so, uh, yeah, you, you can kind of track me down there or, or again, homerhickam.com. Again, we can't thank you enough for your time. This has been absolutely fantastic. Um, again, would love to get together in the fall for a game, do some score predictions or speak again. But, again, thank you for doing such an incredible hey, job. Maybe they'll let me dress out. What do you think? I, I like it. I love it. I'm a huge – I love the shirt. We got to send – Right? Okay. We got to send you uh, – we got to send you a Sons of Saturday hat or a T-shirt or something. Yeah, you um, all right we could do do that and um again thank you so much for representing virginia tech well um you're just one of the many examples of incredible alumni thank you guys i mean i'm proud i'm proud to be associated with you guys you guys are great oh well that goes both uh, ways and most of the hokies you know i mean we're we're we are tight-knit we're family there's no question about it we look out for each other and um and they're just a spirit about the, even when we lose a football game, God help us. Occasionally we do. <laughs> uh, it doesn't take long. Done, uh, 15 minutes later, we're like, okay, let's go have a beer and let's have some fun. Down here in Alabama, if they lose a football game, the whole state goes into mourning. It's just crazy. And, they, and it ruins their whole year. They just die. And it's like, they can't, it's like, no, Hokies, we, we're good winter lose, man. We're just still Hokies and we're, we're going to get out there and do things. So uh, I'm proud to be associated with the university and I'm proud to, to, to have uh, young people like you uh, coming up uh, and uh, representing us so well. Well, Mr. Hickam, thank you thank so you. much. And thank again, we're so looking much. forward to see, uh, to see what's next for you. So uh, best of luck and take care of yourself and please stay safe. I'll do it. Thank you, sir.